When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast. I am Ashish Roy, teaching and practicing psychoanalysis in New Delhi. Today, we will be speaking to Nilofa Kaul, who has taught English literature and now works as a training and supervising analyst in Delhi. She won the Francis Dustin Prize for her paper on parasitism in 2018 and the Rosica Parker Prize for her paper on casual violence in 2021. Today, we are discussing her book, Plato's Ghost on Liminality and Minus Links in Psychoanalysis, which was published by Phoenix Press in 2021. Hi, welcome Nilofa to this podcast. Hi, Ashish. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for doing this and for the introduction. Um, so Nilofa, would we begin with you telling us how you conceived of this book uh, and how you conceived of this title and what all went into it, if you could orient our listeners to that. Yeah, I must mention that it was not me who conceived of this book, but uh, Dr. Salman Akhtar, who without uh, my knowledge was collecting papers I had written. And um, he had found me a publisher, Kate Pierce from Phoenix Press. And he had already decided I was going to write a book. I didn't think I had a book in me at all, but I was very moved And then I stared at my papers and I wondered what they had in common with each other. And what I came up with was the idea of in-betweenness, of the slippery space in between binaries. And that was really what drew me to psychoanalysis in the first place. But as I began to think of this liminal space, I thought of all kinds of things that happened there. I thought of Avner's deeply moving paper on transcending the cisura. And then I thought of all kinds of things that go wrong in that space. Vian puts forward different models of the mind, the digestive model, the respiratory model, and the synaptic model. 
In the last, the synaptic model, he suggests that the analytic space could be thought of as the meeting of two minds, much like the synaptic region where nerve endings meet. This space is the space of turbulence and can beget all kinds of links. There are stormy encounters that may lead to growth. But as you see in my cover image of the book, they can also move towards a negative grid, minus versions of truth and knowledge. Unfortunately, the analyst may remain oblivious all too often. So we make dutiful responses, for instance, or uh, we talk about our concern or our protectiveness, but I believe these form the patina that is the negative of love, hate, and knowledge. I offer the word mutter, M-U-R-T-Y-R, as a kind of minus link. So it's, if you like, a combination of martyr and mother as a kind of a negative version of the analyst. Because we cannot overvalue empathy without the lived emotional experience, the kindness becomes spurious. So those were some of the thoughts that brought it together. The title that you mentioned is from a piece I'd written for... Uh, Dr. Akhtar's book on regret. Um, and I had used one of his papers to anchor a part of the argument there. This is a paper by uh, him called Someday and If Only Fantasies. So he says that there are two kinds of uh, narcissistic longings one which is posited in the future, someday this will happen, or the past where you're looking back and saying, if only this would this could have happened. So when I was reading that, I thought of a poem that I'd read in college uh, by the poet Yeats called What Then? And uh, I added that as a third uh, concept to uh, Salman's concept and I wrote uh, the, the name of the paper was Plato's Ghost mm -hmm. so it kind of stayed with me and I meant it to be a kind of title that everyone could bring their associations to mm -hmm. so uh, yeah Thank you for sharing this entire journey um, that's so, uh, that's very interesting. Um, I found that your book really uh, draws a lot from philosophy, from literature and psychoanalysis. Could you share something about how all three of them come together in your way of thinking? Hmm. Honestly, I don't know why you say philosophy, because while it's very flattering to me that you think so, uh, I don't actually claim to know very much philosophy. Perhaps what you're talking about is literary theory. Um, and that's something that literature kind of steered me towards. It's become now impossible to read and study in departments of literature without confronting this 
behemoth, you know, of critical theory, literary theory, and uh, which has obviously a long tradition in philosophy. So perhaps that is what makes you feel that there is philosophy in my book. But as for literature, I think literature is and will always be my first love. And what I perhaps cherish the most about literature is that it deepens my relationship with reading itself. And it is in and through literature that I discovered psychoanalysis. So it was never like I was drawing upon different things, but that it was always very organically linked. Um, I first encountered Freud while teaching. Maybe I taught Freud. So, um, yeah. Coming to the central theme of your work, which is on minus links, could you share how in the clinic these minus links are observed and felt? Yeah, that's actually the big question. I'll see how I can perhaps, uh, <clears throat> like I mentioned right in the beginning of, the, of our conversation, I think what interests me the most is how the analysts, I think now increasingly we um, find that we need to focus on the link between the patient and us. And that this link, when it is forged in a way that is truthful, it can move the link itself towards growth, but that all too often we find that our minds, and I am talking here about the analyst, the analyst's mind is saturated, exhausted, overrun with all kinds of feelings and unprocessed thoughts. And what is what the analyst then tends to do is takes recourse to mechanical interpretations, to mm -hmm. ready-made uh, responses, to ideas of how an analyst is supposed to be. And leans on theoretical concepts, for example, rather than towards an unsaturated um, experience. And I feel that over time, if we are not careful, the whole relationship becomes crowded and overrun by untruthful communication. So I don't know if this answers your question, but it's hard for me to perhaps summarize the whole book. <laughs> yeah. It's also something which is so dense and so difficult to actually capture. And uh, your book does it in so many uh, vivid ways. I was also thinking if you could share about 
some of the theoretical antecedents that help you create a canvas for this idea of minus links? Um, I don't know. I guess it would have to begin with BN. Um, um, Meltzer writes very eloquently about it. Um, Meg Harris-Williams, um, Avner Bergstein, um, and uh, Chivita Rise, um, Antonio Ferro. Um, these are some of the people I have uh, read who've written, um, Susan Mayo, who have written a lot on the nature of the link, the caesura, um, and who've elaborated Bian's ideas. Mm, there are plenty others, but yeah. There's uh, one chapter in your book which is dedicated to language uh, and talks about how language can be a form of collusion mm -hmm. which gets oversaturated. Mm. Could you share more about this phenomena and also how do how are analysts supposed to work with it, with this oversaturation and predetermination of what is happening in the clinical setting? Well, uh, so I think I would have to give uh, at least two part answer to it. And I think one is that what is the patient bringing to us? And I think what the patient is bringing to us is a particular kind of organized narrative very often. So the patient comes to the analyst with certain assumptions that the that you go for analysis um, to discuss problems or you go there to say things that you can't say anywhere else, or you go there to impress the analyst, or you go there to prove that you're worthy of an analysis. Now, I think all these assumptions are actually never verbalized by the patient. Hmm? And I think Meltzer calls this the gathering of the transference. That is to say, the analyst has to be aware that above and beyond what the patient is actually saying in so many words, there is a whole series of assumptions which perhaps the patient has not verbalized even for herself or himself, right? So we have to listen, not just to the words that the patient is bringing, but also to what assumptions are behind those words. Why is this patient telling me a dream? Why is this patient only telling me repetitively about how stuck her marriage feels? You know, so that's one part of the uh, answer. The other is that what responses do we give to the patient? Do we feel obliged to respond to them again? Um, to the verbal part of the communication of the patient. In which case, are we going to collude with the patient in 
joining in with the stuckness that they are already talking about? Or are we able to find through language another vertex, as BN says, from where we can look at the material that the patient is bringing to us? Because the material is not just the spoken material, but it is the body, it is in the gestures, it is in the in the way that they lie on the couch. All of these are a part of the communication which if we listen to with an evenly suspended attention, then I think what comes out of us may not be as tired, as predictable. So connected to what you just said uh, towards the end of your book you talk about how we can often be overindulgent in our reveries and you stress on paying attention to free association and holding it hmm. say a little about that since reveries are something which have been quote unquote fashionable um, hmm so deeply transformative. How is your own analytic experience of using reveries and also going beyond them? Uh, if you could say a little about that. Yeah. I think um, I have a certain impatience with any kind of idiom that gets overused. So I feel that whichever school of analysis you're coming from, some terms become, as you said, rightly, fashionable. So, you know, if you come from this school, then enactment is fashionable. From Come from that school, reverie is fashionable, you know. Uh, and I feel that, you know, that it gets very overused and it requires a lot of um, um, skill and... Uh, thought to be able to use your associations, whatever they happen to be, your dreams, your reveries, whatever it is. If you ask me personally, I use them all the time. I mean, I would, it's the only way to find one's way out of the deadness, the stuckness, etc. that we feel. But do I call them reveries? I'm never sure. I'm never sure, was this a reverie? Was this an association? Was this a kind of waking dream? I don't know. But I think it's very important not to jump and say, oh, I had this reverie. Because very often we find in supervisions and so on, maybe even ourselves, uh, having disconnected thoughts. And I think it's... Uh, and I'm not saying that they are not useful or that they can't be used, but I think very often people, all of us, are not aware of why we are having these thoughts and in what way we can use them in the service of the patient. So it's not a thing in itself is what I'm saying. A reverie is not just because I have a thought doesn't mean anything until I'm able to give it some meaning in the light of what is happening in the session. And hence, a certain kind of wariness with 
popularity uh, of the word hmm? i don't know but i think somewhere maybe when you use the word overindulgence it's also to make analysts aware that don't become narcissistic with what is going on inside you but always be open to questioning it like you have just shared yeah also- yeah thanks for picking that up yeah I think there are so many different themes that your book picks up, but I really found that uh, the link that you make between perversion and parasitism hmm. was deeply interesting. And since you have worked on the idea of parasitism for some time, if you could uh, tell us a little about how it makes an appearance and how you work with it. I think it came to me perhaps because of a certain kind of an unpleasant sensation i had uh working with a few patients where i would feel that something was being taken from me but it was not being acknowledged and to be honest it's not something which is experienced only with patients but it's something one experiences in life itself that when something is taken from us and not acknowledged it creates a kind of a resentment and that was the kind of starting point for the paper where i tried to make sense of it that why should it be something that a patient doesn't want to acknowledge um you know it could be a book it could be your way of dressing it could be your way of speaking and you feel that it's something that is being um i thought to begin with that it was something that was being i felt like it's being stolen from me so that's why the word parasitic came into my mind but as i wrote the paper and as i began to understand it i thought it wasn't the patient who was being parasitic but it was the link which felt parasitic where it really came back to me and my inability to be able to see and understand what was actually happening and it is when you reach that kind of um, block in yourself where you are not able to make sense of why somebody is making you feel this way that the 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 paper actually became about an autistic island that it is when these two blocks collide with each other patient naturally by virtue of being a patient cannot is helpless in being able to communicate what is going on but if i too fail to pick it up then we keep colliding like these two you know rocks against each other and it remains at the level of parasitism whereas in fact if i am able to read what is happening like the helplessness and that's why i give those instances of um, i mean in plant in animal life that what is parasitic from one vertex is commensal from another so uh, it's really analytic failure that um, pointed me or kept me 
uh, at the level of reading it as parasitism. But writing the paper actually opened up something uh, that was blocked. So interesting that autism, parasitism, and perversion, uh, parasitism and perversion have a kind of a, uh, enmeshment of boundaries in different ways. Mm-hmm. Autism, as you just said, is like an island. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering that how does one observe these forms being different and being enmeshed or coexisting together in clinical work? Yeah. Especially uh, yeah. and parasitism, how do we see the difference or the link between these two. Okay, so well, in a very straightforward and simple way, a parasitic link is a hostile link, or it's experienced as a hostile link, and therefore it is the opposite of hospitable, you know. Um, It's interested in taking, but for some tragic reason, this cannot be acknowledged, and so it is what is being given is not It is ingested, but it's not digested, hmm? I feel. So it's taken in. So what is then taken in is denuded of its power to nourish. So what what is given then uh, in such a link doesn't have the power to nourish. Say a mother who is very resentful of feeding the baby at her breast is feeding it in a form where she's rejecting it the baby is not really able to derive nourishment from that feed. So we may see patients who receive, but in a very stealthy way. You know, they may dress like you, they may speak like you, but this is never brought into the session. For example, a patient of mine who said, I'm interested only in taking what you don't intend to give. Now, This perverts the relationship between the giver and the taker. Literally, the word perverse comes from the Latin to thoroughly turn, you know. So the parasitic link thoroughly turns around the possibility of a commensal or a symbiotic link between the giver mother and the taker baby. The analyst and analyzant may enter into a perverse link where they are each taking from one another without being able to acknowledge it to themselves. And, you know, when I wrote this paper, I didn't think of it. But I thought later that maybe we as analysts also are parasitically taking things from our patients. In fact, we probably do and never acknowledge it. And then we tell ourselves, like, we have to maintain neutrality. We have to maintain abstinence. That's why we can't acknowledge things to our patients. But nevertheless, it means that it is a parasitic link that we are colluding with. So, yeah. That's so interesting. And trying to imagine what do we take from our patients? I think we take a lot. No, I mean, it can be very concretely, like in the sense of um, maybe a, a book or a poem or something that they talk about. It can be their way of thinking, which is, uh, which is very interesting to us. Sometimes they give us ideas which we hadn't had before. 
we write papers on them. They give us themselves to write about. So, yeah. You also write in one part of your book that how uh, autistic retreats should be respected. Um, I'm wondering that how do you how do you position autistic retreats in normal development and how should they be respected? Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose retreat is really the crucial word, right? In this, because we are not here talking about autism, but we are talking about retreats. And the most recent example that comes to my mind is COVID. You know, when COVID happened, I think most people, I mean, including myself probably, went into a kind of an autistic shell, you know, from which it was quite difficult to reemerge. Not that we enjoyed being inside it, but that we did exactly what, you know, crustaceans do. We created, um, our homes became our shells and we were... Um, you know, inside that, and we were operating on our computers, and we were, you know, so the whole internet, for example, the phenomena of internet and Zoom analysis all feeds into an autistic retreat. So do we respect that? Um, I don't think there can be a categorical yes or no answer to that. And I think with patients, we have to always keep interpreting and thinking about the role of the retreat in that particular moment. Is it something? Because, you know, if we don't talk about it, if we just leave it be, then we are deepening the shell. If we are very proactive in it, then we are probably strengthening the fear the, of intrusiveness that the patient is feeling. So I guess that's why I say it can't be a yes or no answer. It has to be like an analysis. There are no answers, right? So we just have to take each moment as it comes and see what the experience of that moment is. What could the patient be meaning in that moment by his retreat? Another one of your chapters focuses on Melzer's ideas, and the chapter is very evocatively titled The Womb and the Fetus. Mm -hmm. Really helps us see where the struggle lies when the analyst uh, is trying to care for the patient, but the patient can't take any care. You also really focus on the bodily zones as geographical locations where the patient is housed. Would you share something about this experience of observing these bodily zones in the clinical work and expressing it to the patient? And what does it mean in terms of uh, the psychic structure of the patient or the psychopathology? Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I see patients uh, like Meltzer describes them as being in particular bodily zones, the breast or the genitals or the anus. 
um, it's a very persuasive reading, but I'm not sure that I would like to classify patients in those terms. Uh, but I, I do feel that there are patients who may be very stuck inside one way of functioning. And perhaps the only way is to observe how claustrophobic, how paralyzing that is. But also to pick up in the experience of being in the session any moment that feels alive. And one has to, I like the way, you know, you had mentioned the word hospice. So I like the way uh, you use that. One has to be prepared for a long hospice oneself. And perhaps the possibility of things not significantly changing. And that despair has to be born. So it's like, you know, with one ear, uh, you hear the claustrophobia and the paralysis. And with the other ear, you're listening for any tiny movement that is venturing out of it. That's, I thought, the best that I can. That's beautifully put. Thank you. I also wanted to know from you that uh, you write a lot about working with patients where, whose psychic skin hasn't developed. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on the counter-transference responses that an analyst feels and what is the kind of fragility that patients who don't have a psychic skin, uh, what is the underlying fragility that they carry? Um... It's come a long way from the time uh, they wrote about thin-skinned and thick-skinned narcissism. And I have in mind Esther Wick's work on the function of skin in early object relations. And in fact, I was rereading that uh, paper today itself. And I was, uh, you know, because uh, I am actually working again on the same, on a related subject. And I found that when she's describing the second skin formation, it sounds very much like um, how we look at autistic babies, you know, um, very much the fears that are um, described are of unintegration rather than disintegration, you know, of falling into space, of leaking, of dissolving, of um, um, and those call to us in many different ways. Actually, sometimes we can feel maternal. We can feel the need to envelop such patients. We can lend them our own skin again unconsciously, so that they can wrap themselves in our skin. So we become the womb to the fetus. At other times, it can be a very um, anti-experience where we don't want to lend our skin to, where the patient is being too needy um, and is experienced by the analyst as being invasive or intrusive. We may not wish to lend our skin. We, we may retreat away from the patient. So I guess it's a bit of a dance, isn't it? 
where we don't quite know what it's going to evoke in us. So it's not as if patients who don't have skin have only one way of behaving and the analyst has only one response to that, but that each analyst, analyzant in each session does a different dance, you know, where we don't know uh, whether we are going to feel for the patient or feel against the patient, keeps changing. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. Maybe it would be really nice to hear something that you really like from your book, uh, if you could read it out to our listeners. Thanks, Ashish. Um, maybe I'd like to read the last paragraph because we are concluding the interview. So it might give it a sense of an ending. <laughs> um, this book started out as an exploration of the liminal spaces that constitute the domain of psychoanalysis, but eventually it began to narrow down to the impediments roadblocks, bastions, and walls that emerge in the analytic link. It seems that the primitive part of the mind is always looking for ways to evade psychic pain and emotional truth is always in peril. The links between us and our patients, and more importantly within us ourselves, are always fraught with danger. All too often, omniscience and arrogance threaten knowledge. Melancholia poses as grief, adhesiveness as introjection, sentimentality and nostalgia replace emotionality, horror takes over terror, while sensationalism robs mysteriousness, romantic love acts as an alibi for terrifying intimacy, empathy conceals deadness, obsequiousness sounds like gratitude, Collusions and folly are the dissemble as mutualism. In these liminal moments, the links between analyst and analyzant slide away from the emotional truth rather than towards it. Thank you. That's a beautiful ending. And thank you so much for... Thank you so much, Ashish, for doing this.